Hey y'all. Before we get into the episode with Ali, who is, I'm not gonna lie, one of my favorite designers out there right now. Uh, this was a really fun episode, just getting to, to know her. I've been following her for a while, so uh, I, I hadn't actually put a personality behind some of the designs before, so this was kind of cool getting to, to know this person. Uh, so, you know, as, as most of you know, I'm recording this on March 6th, so uh, 2022, I should say. Um, at the moment, uh, Russia is invading Ukraine, and I have all kinds of feelings about it. I, I haven't really posted a ton about it on my social media because... I don't feel informed enough and I'm not really going to speak on it in great detail either because I don't feel comfortable talking about things that I don't understand fully. But what I I do gather is that um, this doesn't seem to be about the Russian people per se. It seems to be more about uh, Vladimir Putin and it's wrong and people are dying, losing their homes, losing their livelihoods. It's disgusting. Uh, but then there's another layer to this that has also bothered me is uh, countries and uh, territories occupied by black and brown people experience and have experienced similar things many times in my lifetime. And it seems to not get the same, they, they don't seem to have the same empathy uh, when it happens there. It doesn't get as much attention and that became clear in some of the commentary we've seen from uh, Western media. And, you know, every time you think we make some progress, you just get reminded again, which is the thing that a lot of black folks, and we talked about it on the show too, grappled with in 2020 about, you know, when's the ball going to drop? Everyone seems to be on the same page that black lives matter, but when's, when's the, is this for real? And um, some of the images I've seen and, and audio and video of folks being more disgusted by what's happening here because these folks aren't black and brown is just a reminder of where we are in society and our position in society. And some of them are saying it without even realizing how disgusting it is. And uh, you know, I don't know. <sighs> There's a lot of talk about whether or not it's appropriate to, to talk about race when something like this is going on. But then I wonder when it is appropriate because when things are going well, we talk about race and it is told that we're, we're bringing negativity. And then when something horrible is happening, like what's happening in Ukraine, uh, you know, it feels like dunking on people who are already going through something horrible. Uh, but for me, it's just all around horrible. It's all sad. And um, to see 
how this is all unfolding, um, it's very troubling. And I've seen a lot of black folks say before any of these images even came out uh, and stories came out saying this isn't our fight. That's something that had nothing to do with us. I disagree. I, I, I really think that it's a it's a human issue no matter what. Um, but when you when you see how how we're treated in in those situations, this is kind of why those folks have made those kind of statements. So, anyway, um, love and light to anyone who is experiencing uh, trauma while this is going on. Anyone who has family in Ukraine. Anyone who uh, is there listening or anywhere else and has managed to get out and is listening, uh, you have my empathy, um, you have my well wishes, and um, yeah, like the complexities of, of all of this stuff is also why this episode with Ali is really interesting because I her work deals with a, a lot to do with black culture and race. And when we hold each other accountable as black people and when we speak out about things that are going on. So, you know, some of the images in her work might be offensive to some people, but I, I think all of that makes it that much more powerful. So, uh, before we actually get more into that, uh, I just wanted to also say thank you to anyone who came out to the the uh, design talk we did with uh, Dion Marked and uh, Dwayne Edwards from Pencil, and uh, you know helped facilitated by uh, Mash Media with uh, Jody Uloth, and of course Augie Jones for hosting through Empathize Others. We got a lot of positive feedback about the talk and we really want to, to do some more things. So be on the lookout. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 we got some things cooking. Also, I was at uh, NASCAD uh, earlier this week speaking at a first live event for a while. I talked about storytelling and a creative practice. And it was cool to be in a place uh, in person for the first time in a long time. And I actually felt safe. I felt like I could do it again. I feel like I might be ready to, to get back out in the real world and, and do some things. So that, that felt positive. Uh, and it was it was nice to actually uh, meet meet a follower from on Instagram that I hadn't uh, seen in the real world before, and saw some some friends I hadn't seen in a while, and uh, yeah, it was nice. I also want you to look out for uh, a film festival NASCAR University will be putting on. It'll be taking place on April fourth and fifth, and uh, I'll probably talk about it a little more as we get a bit closer, and. Um, yeah, it's a, it's pretty exciting. The Alumni Association is going to be helping with that. I'm the vice president of the Alumni Association. So, uh, yeah, keep your eyes out for that. And also just something fun. Uh, I've been rewarding myself with books lately. 
And one of the f- my favorites that I've read so far is How to Be an Artist by Jerry Saltz. It's a fantastic book. If you're trying to figure things out as an artist, uh, if you know someone, it's a very short book. It's easy to read. It's just my favorite kind of book. <laughs> and uh, he's funny. But also, like, some of the the, the uh, information is super valuable. So check it out if you can. And it's also, like, I've wanted to write a book myself for a while. And it's reading his book just was another reminder for me to get on that. And, uh, yeah, be on the lookout for, you know, a potential Art Pays Me book. Let's get into this show. What's up? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm an artist and a designer and the founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. And this is the Art Pays Me podcast. I love talking to creative people about their business, their successes, their challenges, and how they make the world a better place with their work. Let's get into it. Welcome to our page meet. Today we have Ali Thatcher. So uh, I've been following Ali for a long time, but I, I always just think of Ali as fallen cargo because that's that's how I know Ali on Instagram. And I think I came across the account first because somewhere I saw this do rags to riches design and it was hilarious. If you're a black dude, and you, of a certain age, the do-rag was just got to get my waves on. It was just a thing that it connected us. And uh, I, I love that. Because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a black dude from Bermuda, but, like, you, you see how this stuff kind of translates across culture, even if you're not necessarily American. And this is kind of like an American uh, black yeah. culture thing. But yeah, Ali. So I mean, I, I kind of meandered in the intro a little longer than I normally do. But oh no, nah, go off. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you, and what do you do? Uh, so uh, I'm Ali Thatcher. I'm an artist and designer. I'm uh, based in Massachusetts, in the United States, and um, yeah, man, I started uh, my art and design practice called Fallen Cargo back in 2016. I've been working as an independent designer probably for like eight years, you know, since I graduated from art school in 2014. So I've been freelancing for a long time and I, I really love what I do. So, yeah, that's a that's cool. the intro to me. What school did you go to? I went to the University of Hartford in Connecticut. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay they have uh they have a pretty like established art school there and i studied uh visual communication design yeah same and that, that might be why i i feel like i connect with you so so much because that was the, the name of my degree as well uh <laughs> did you um have to like study semiotics oh oh i don't even know what that is can you explain what is semiotics uh, it's like the study of signs and kind of culture and uh, breaks down like the psychology but t- behind using certain fonts, using certain colors, using certain layouts, certain photos, really kind of dig deep into that. 
And I think your work really has a sophisticated um, like way of using semiotics. Oh, that's so. so cool. I didn't even know there was like a course for that. Cause I think that it's like, it's kind of, there isn't a specific course, but it's like, it's infiltrated in every different course that you take when you're studying design. Yeah, it's just true. So you're based in uh, Massachusetts right now. Did you grow up there? Yeah, yeah. I moved around a lot when I was younger, but like part of my childhood, uh, like I was born in Syracuse, New York. Okay. And then part of my childhood, I was living in Hartford, Connecticut. And then when I was like eight, I moved to Massachusetts, like a really small rural town south of Boston. So I've been there for most of my life. Okay, okay. Nice. I, I got um, some family that's actually based in, in Boston, so kind of have a little bit of connection there. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of West Indians in Boston. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I'm kind of interested in what led you to design. Were you always someone as you identified as an artist as a, as a kid? Yeah, I would say so. Like, it was it was really early. I can remember, like, my first creative memory being in kindergarten and uh, one of my teachers, she would always like photograph me with like the things that I would make. Huh. And it was kind of this thing in, in school, even in first grade, I remember everybody was like, Oh, you're just going to be an artist. Cause I, I was the kid in class that could draw really well. Yep. And I don't know. And too, like I have a two older siblings and they're both very creative people. So that was just something that was natural to us that we always did. Uh, just playing in the house, drawing comics, uh, making music and weird videos. Mm -hmm. Was this something that was like supported by your family in general? Oh, absolutely. I, I realized how lucky I am to have that because I remember going to art school and I had classmates whose parents did not agree with them going to art school at all. So my, my mm -hmm. family's always been supportive. Right, right. So it's... Um... With the, the, the way your work goes, do you feel like uh, there was a lot of Black culture and pride sort of instilled in you as a youth? Absolutely. I mean, so like where I live and where I grew up is like predominantly white and rural, but m my household was always very Black. Like my mom only keeps books in the house written by Black people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, growing up watching BET or watching um, Hype Williams music videos on MTV. Yes. You know, uh, Vibe magazine, The Source. My mom had a subscription with Vibe for a really long time. And then my brother, he had a subscription with The Source for a long time as well. And I used to just like collect different um, like advertisements out of the magazines. Mm. And that's when I think I, I got attracted to advertising design and um and I, that was like sort of my into knowing all the latest streetwear, whereas a lot of my friends and classmates that I grew up with and like living in mass were like, being that they're white rural kids, they're not connected with that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I was way more in tune with black culture than a lot of my peers. Right, right. Did you find like when you went to school, uh, that aesthetic was taken seriously as, as a real movement? Uh, like in high school or in art school? I'm thinking more at the art school level. Um, 
Not really. It's 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 so interesting because I feel like the art school world is still it's still locked in with very like Western design rules that were invented by a bunch of white men. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think when it comes to black culture, we may not design things or create things that fit in those rules, but they are so integral to design and like the way that people dress, the way that people like listen to our music, like so much of our culture influences modern design but because that culture gets erased or because like uh the idea of whiteness sort of um like erases our contributions from that and like our contributions to history people don't realize that the stuff that recreate is like a legitimate art form right right uh what i I'm, gonna, I'm just I'm such a fan. I really am a fan of what you do. I'm just going to going to uh, go off on that a little bit more. But so the way you design stuff, it does this thing that like I remember when I was in art school, they would always kind of praise or talk about these artists who um, were able to like sort of tap into a certain like innocence, I guess. And I feel like your work does a great job of like pretending to not uh be of a like certain level of training or sophistication but it's done so skillfully that someone like me who's been through that I pick it up I'm like this is being done on purpose I I feel like she knows what she's doing here like it ain't like you know this wasn't slapped together in word or something like that so like, is that an intentional thing where you're trying to, like, speak directly to a certain person? Oh, yeah, that's spot on. Like, I'm okay. very calculated and, like, cerebral about what I do. Uh, and I, f- and I, I have some, like, really amazing friends of mine. Like, I, I, I'm very lucky to have a great, like, creative community of, like, black and brown people. And, you know, we all work together and try to like promote each other. And we have a lot of conversations about that, of how like um, one of my friends, uh, he had this analogy about how, you know, these hipster restaurants, they love to fabricate, like they love to ghettoize things. Yeah. And they like, like they like, like hipster culture. It's like, oh, we're going to make 40 ounces, but it's like (laughs) bottles of water. Right. But, um, But then when it comes to like the things that are authentic in our own neighborhood, like he was like, you know, some of these hipster restaurants, they love to take these aesthetics, but their food isn't good. Like they might do a good job at branding like uh, edginess, but Mm -hmm. it's never going to get me to stop going to the Chinese restaurant that may not have the best sign or the best branding. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so like we have a very specific cultural and visual language that is um, meaningful to us that we recognize. And I think sometimes it's not about having the most polished, well-designed thing. It's about making the thing that connects. And like, to me, that's good design. And I think that that gets lost in the principles of good design. Mm -hmm. Semiotics right there. Uh, You know, know, and honestly, I was guilty of doing the opposite of that. Like once I started to learn some of those like European uh, design rules and things like that, when uh, like a Caribbean society would ask me to design a flyer for them, 
I was like, I got to design it according to these rule sets and kind of ignoring the culture that I come from and the culture that I'm actually trying to speak to. And they were kind of, those flyers kind of flopped. And Mm -hmm. I was like, they just don't understand design. But me coming around full circle now, I'm like, no, like, you got to meet people where they are. And, you know, trying trying to lecture at them about, Oh, you must use minimalism and so, like that's not what mm-hmm. they're here to part they want to party like you got to right. speak on the language they're trying to, to, to and get I think, to and I think for a lot of black creatives we're always trying to find that sweet spot of like where we can still tap into something that's well designed but speaks to our culture and, and I know that I've talked with other designers who are black about how you know like uh, for example like in the we like dominate sort of the hair care industry Mm-hmm. You know, like, like black people create a lot of products, but sometimes the packaging isn't always well done. Mm. And so sometimes we have to figure out a way to make something that like, I think design is a great tool to legitimize certain things in our culture. And yes. so we got to be able to find that balance where it's like, we can make this look good, but also speak specifically to our community. And I think I try to do that with my work as much as possible is like use these skills that I've, I have a privilege, you know, I have had the privilege to go to art school. I'm going to use these skills, but be direct to my community and my people. And I, and I feel like to, um, you know, I think I've been thinking about Virgil Abloh a lot because, you know, I understand he's kind of a complicated figure because he's taken a very sanitized version of like of streetwear culture and put it in the high fashion space. And sometimes we, as black people, we don't connect with it because it's like, it's like, why are you designing things for an industry that doesn't care about black people, Mm -hmm. but it's still, there's still merit in it. And it's still um, introducing us to an aesthetic that we may never have been introduced to before. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. For, for all of the criticisms that people might make of Virgil, and also, like, I, I just always appreciate it. And maybe it's because of going to design school and stuff like that. When you hear him explain the thought behind something that seems completely simple or whatever, then you're like, oh, wow, he really, like, there was something there. There, there, there is a, a structure that, that he's, and a, and a conversation he's intentionally trying to have yeah. with people. Mm-hmm. I appreciate his design ethos. And, like, uh, I think it's so important to like allow we had to allow him to have the space to just be a designer that just so happened to be black rather than trying to be uh, put his identity into the work. Absolutely. I love that. Actually, I wanted to, that was something I wanted to push to talk about with you actually. Uh, Do you, and it's it's something I know I grapple with, but do you feel like black designers since we're not as represented in the in this creative industry as much as other folks are is there a responsibility that we have to that like making things about blackness about culture about you know mm-hmm. these things yeah i mean i think we all have a responsibility like even designers that are white have a responsibility mm-hmm. <laughs> you know at, at least a, a responsibility to um create work that's honest and true and connects with people. Yeah. And so for us, it's like, I know I'm creating work that I connect with. 
on a, on a personal level. Like I just am creating work based on what I observe and what I see, but I do feel like when I'm, um, like when I'm creating work that's super spicy, (laughs) (laughs) I have to like take a moment and check in with myself and remind myself, like, am I, because I'm towing a line here, I have to make sure that I'm being socially responsible. And so like, I'll sit with work for a year and that's how I kind of um, make sure I create balance with being responsible because my work does, it functions as activism. Even if I don't identify as an activist, it functions as that way for people. You know, Mm -hmm. like people really connect with my work in a meaningful way and I can't um, be naive to that. Yeah. And so I do care about being socially responsible and knowing that my work does speak for uh, a particular group of people. Um, But I also want to make sure that uh, my work is open for criticism by our community as well. Not every black person is going to going to agree with how I'm um, executing my work or the language that I'm using in my work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it becomes complicated too, where, so I've had times where I design things and my, my wife's in the education space. So mm-hmm. she would see it and say that thing you're designing is look, it looked, or that you're trying to put on a t-shirt. It looks like it's actually critical of black people or it could be perceived to make black people look badly. And I'm like, well, I'm coming at it from, from this perspective or that perspective, but she was right in a lot of those situations because like, if you took me out of the context Mm -hmm. and it was designed by a white person, then it can come off as Mm -hmm. anti-black. So then you, there is, but for me at the same time, I want to be honest um, in my work. And sometimes I want to be critical of sometimes folks in our community that are messing up. Uh, mm-hmm. might make it into my, my, my social media or, or in my <laughs> art. Um, but it, it can feel like a betrayal to, to our folks at times too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it's so tough. Cause it, I was like reading something and it was talking about how like the moment that our language gets co-opted by uh, white people is the moment that the connotation completely changes. And mm. like, and we oftentimes have no control over that. Yeah. Like, for example, the the first T-shirt that I did, the KK Kardashian shirt. <laughs> if a white person wears that, the connotation changes completely. And I oftentimes right. get white people who ask me, like, is it OK for me to wear this? And I explain to them, I was just like, it's not my call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like I let them kind of figure that out because I'm not trying to hold their hand through the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a few of those too. It's like when a black person wears it, it's saying something. When a white person saying it, where is it? It's like, huh? Is that really? It's very, very different. <laughs> That's like I've been. I have this. Um, I did like a zine called um, what is it? Breaking news in unprecedented times. Mm-hmm. That was like um, it basically like I illustrated it in the middle of the insurrection because oh, I was like, this is. Ho- I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is hilarious. <laughs> and it was just like and so like with that zine I'm poking fun at like white people within the system of white supremacy but I also think that we have to poke fun at black people who also become agents of white supremacy as well because my word you know (laughs) because 
because at the end of the day it's like we're all taught these ideologies of white supremacy like everybody is taught to hate blackness and to think that whiteness is bad like regardless of race yeah and like we have to hold our own accountable i believe that holding our own accountable is a part of our liberation Mm. but the thing is is we can't it's difficult to do that when the white gaze is present yeah yeah you know so um but but i feel like if it's funny people will get it like it has to be that damn funny Mm -hmm. like i had this illustration about jesse uh smollett Mm -hmm. and like the all the different I have like several illustrations based on it. Cause it's like all these different complexities of it, where there are people that were like, that knew his story was bullshit. But at the same yeah. time, it's like gay people experience hate crimes at a much higher rate than any other, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So it's like, so like I have two illustrations that kind of put that conversation together and break down all of those different layers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it. Uh, that's a, that was a good example because there there's certain situations where you know something's bullshit, but like if you criticize it, it's like you don't take the entirety of the issue seriously, and it can be used as a a weapon by white supremacists to say, mm-hmm. "See, look, right here," uh, or you know, homophobes or whatever the case may be. So it's it's uh it's a but when it's funny it's funny because it's like you can you can kind of get away with playing that line mm-hmm. uh so um you you mentioned wanted to talk about satire and your work is very satirical it, it cracks me up uh, even the durags to riches i don't even know if that was intentional you were in, intending that to be funny but it just it puts a smile on my face every time i see it um, absolutely it's like charming funny <laughs> yeah 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 what so what uh what about like satire in in your art or in your design is important to you well first of all I'm so happy that you laugh at my work because I laugh at my work <laughs> okay <laughs> and I do think that humor is a great way of disarming a lot of these loaded conversations mm. and I try to look at things from a bird's eye view you know, like there are so many absurdities and hypocrisies, especially in American society. Mm-hmm. And like, I think we, I think it's so important to poke fun at it, but also provide some historical evidence and truth. Like I try to find that balance because nowadays things turn into meme, like everything is memeable. And there's that fine line between like trivializing pain and like making Uh, making it a meme like a funny meme but Mm -hmm. I always try to provide some historical context and you know I I really enjoy working with satire and you know a couple pieces bodies of work that I I I find a lot of like inspiration from is um obviously Chappelle show Mm -hmm. um the boondocks which is like such a beautiful beacon for satire and black culture yeah (laughs) <laughs> like like there's something about the boondocks that is so untouched by white culture yeah um, it's, whereas, it's weird though isn't it that's mm-hmm. like the one thing that i noticed that white folks haven't really grabbed a hold of on the internet that much right whereas like Chappelle show he had to stop it because people were laughing at it for the wrong reasons <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know what i mean and i think about and i take i really um pay attention to like his journey and his story on um 
when you have to pull back, when you have to like burn the machine that you created down, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think about that when I, uh, with fallen cargo of like, you know, just like a cautionary tale um, of knowing when things are getting taken out of context, you know, cause it, it, satire is such a double-edged sword, Yep. you know, where it's like for the amount of people that are going to understand exactly what you're saying, there's, the same amount of people that it's going to be way over their heads and they're going to be laughing at it without even understanding what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I, but I love the process of working with satire because it's very cerebral. It's very scientific in a way. Mm-hmm. Like it's like being able to have the answer to the equation, but then you have to work backwards and then you have to do the equation over and over again to make sure that you're getting it right. Yeah. Um, Do you ever feel like you have to bounce it off with someone else just to, to see? Yeah, all the time. I mean, I think I bounce it off my family a lot because mm-hmm. they also like inspire some of the humor because we have a lot of conversations about politics and um, black culture and uh, democracy and like being in America. And um, and we speak a lot about history. And I think, you know, what 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 really helps me stand my ground in my work is by being very in tune with history because mm-hmm. you can't debate with facts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You can't, you can't argue with me about things that are rooted in facts. Well, you know, I, I will push back on that because I found that <laughs> this, this, uh, this uh, dark comedy that we're living in right now, these mofos, they, they have completely, done the misinformation train and doesn't you bring a fact to them and they, they say well it's i don't trust that source and mm-hmm. it's like uh okay so you trust memes um you trust Yo. YouTube videos <laughs> it's like i made some uh i made a pack of highlighters that was like memes are not reliable sources <laughs> yeah and, and it is is so crazy now and like the whole purpose of like uh, oppressive power structures or fascist power structures is, is to create skepticism is to disrupt reality, tell you what's real and what's not. And I think when you understand the tactic of that, you can kind of ri- I, I try to rise above it. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and some people you're just not going to reach, you know, mm-hmm. that's just is what it is. So like, I don't, I try not to, I'm not going to sit here and educate an ignorant people. Yeah. You yeah. know, like sometimes you have to let them, let them bask in their cognitive dissonance. And some people like that's their way to survive. You know what I mean? I yeah. think about, I think about for like, for example, you know, 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump, right? They're mm-hmm. voting against their own interests, but yeah. like they have to do that to survive. Like white women have to align with white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, even though it hurts them, they have to align with it because the alternative um, doesn't get them anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I try to like think about the logic of it. And it's like, I understand why people don't want to um, don't want to take facts into consideration because it, it rids them of any personal responsibility yeah. Yeah. I, I feel the same way when it comes to uh, immigrants of color here when people say like, oh, you know, 
this immigrant from whatever agrees with XYZ, or this immigrant from this place agrees with that XYZ. And part of it is, I think, a recognition from them very early on that if I align with white supremacy, even though they might not necessarily be thinking of it as that, Mm -hmm. they're recognizing where the power is. And that's what they're going to align with. So sometimes they'll do that as a survival. Yeah. And there's like a specific, a very specific name and it's very deliberate. Like that whole model minority mentality was designed specifically for that to indoctrinate immigrants into the American ideology. And that's information that like people don't know about that will, that like you have to go and find and dig for and unearth. Yeah, for sure. So Fallen Cargo as a name, did you take a long time coming up with that, that name? Yeah. Yeah. I, I came up with that when I was in high school. Oh, um, see. yeah, I, w- I was plotting early. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but at the time, I think it was just uh, Fallen Cargo was more of, um, I just wanted like a cool name for a streetwear brand. And I liked the concept of like things falling off a truck, like a euphemism for bootlegging. Uh huh. Because yeah. like streetwear is so tied to that. Um, I think what's so interesting is uh, Black people created the Black market and then... <laughs> And then white people made it legal and pushed us out of it. Like, that's what they've done with everything. Like weed? Yep, uh, exactly. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> every, everything. Um, and so, um, yeah, like that name, it, it stems from that euphemism. And I also feel like, you know, when it comes to like our culture, we will always have an infinite resource. Like culture is our natural resource. And, um, and no matter how many times like white people try to have access to it, they will never be able to execute it in the way that we do because they don't have, they don't have that struggle. They don't have that pain. They don't have that experience. Mm. Interesting. You know, and, and I feel like the name is very much tied to, to that whole concept of like us having this endless amount of ingenuity, you know, in our culture. Huh. Yeah. I honestly, I thought the the origin was actually much darker and scarier than that. I thought it was a reference to uh, slaves falling off a ship. Oh, that's deep. That's deep, right? I, I was like, oh, I, I, <laughs> it, mm. it's it could get dark, and it could apply. That that, it, it, that that's what I'm saying. That applies. It applies. <laughs> wow. Uh, okay. Well, I'm glad. I mean, because the thing is, like, uh, yeah, your your um, streetwear analogy of the the fall of a truck, perfect, perfect storyline. But then when I, I the first thing I thought about was that, and just how like you seem you work in these like double entendres so much. Uh, I figured that that might be what it what it was. Interesting. Maybe maybe it worked out uh, subconsciously. <laughs> yeah sometimes art works that way (laughs) this is true this is true uh so um one thing uh i wanted to talk about how do you feel about kanye right now you have this thing jesus feigned what (laughs) what is that about um well i think like that was specific to sunday service because okay um I think that, um, you know, it was just cultish. 
<laughs> like it was just like even though um one of the things that I could appreciate about that specific project is like um gospel is such an integral part of black music yeah and I think the moment that our sound turns to pop music you lose that element of gospel mm -hmm. and so he was trying to revive that back into back into um our like lexicon of of music um you know it's like just as much as we love trap it's just like let's put that soulfulness back into it and so i can appreciate that aspect of it but my mm -hmm. general analysis of kanye west is like and, and it's it's ever it's constantly evolving mm. um because he's constantly on like a hundred thousand yeah uh, he just makes me think of what like what i was saying about aligning with white supremacy patriarchy mm -hmm. capitalism like everybody is trying to figure out how to survive and thrive within this system whether you align with it or not mm -hmm. and i think to be the richest african-american in america you have to like align with some fucked up shit in yeah. order to get to the space that he's in and i think that we have to be able to evaluate as a community of like what are the consequences of that right like uh you know i think in order to be a part of the ruling class you have to um you have to untether yourself from your community you have to adopt apathy and not empathy you have to um embrace individualism and think only about you and not how your actions affect an entire community. Um, you know, um, I think it, I'm not like a, opposed to like interracial relationships, but I think that there are, there's a message that is sent about like, you know, when he get on, he go leave your ass for a white girl. And like the fact that he became he that, and, that and even the ways that he, he puts certain women like particularly white women in his circle to prop him up. Mm, like he's aware of all of the accessories that he needs in order to beat the white man at his own game. Like he just wants white male privilege. And I'm trying to get to a space of not judging it, but just understanding it from a sociological and like a uh, perspective. And, you know, he, he is, entered some territory that I don't think any of not too many black people have been able to enter. And I think he's someone that is trying to push the needle so far ahead that the needle is almost sinking back into his, into his finger. If that mm. makes sense, if that analogy yeah. makes sense. And um, unfortunately we as a community have to deal with the consequences of that. And it mm. sucks. It sucks sometimes. And um, I think I, I support him as a human being and I want him to be happy because I think as black people, we have no choice but to love black people because mm -hmm. no one else will love, no one else will. Like we have to support our own because no one else will. But mm -hmm. I, back to what I was saying about like accountability, like how much that is so integral to the liberation of us as black people is like, we still have to hold him accountable. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you know, I really tried to listen to the the Donda project. And it's just like, yeah, this music is beautiful, but there's nothing to it. It's like a 
it's like a beautiful mansion with no furniture in it. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you see the unraveling of Kanye West, you see all of the things that he sacrificed to achieve this acceptance into this elite space. And like, uh, you know, and it's really sad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I, can't, I can't really celebrate him being a billionaire. I can't even celebrate Rihanna being a billionaire because I don't believe billionaires should exist. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so it just shows you what that, what aligning with that, um, the ideology of white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, what that does to black people. And I think we should all pay attention to it and take note of it without judgment, but just understand it. I'm trying to just remind myself of that, of like understanding it. Cause I think, I think we're all susceptible of going down that path and becoming untethered from our community. I think money and white people's idea of wealth operates that way. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I believe that as black folks, we should create our own value system and like have our own ideas of wealth that are actually indigenous to us. Mm, interesting. And so, and so it's just like the moment you um, attach yourself to these ideologies that aren't really indigenous to you, that aren't really there to benefit you, you might benefit financially and you might create, you might acquire power and influence, but what do you have inside? Like as a person, like your like your soul is pretty much done. Like you have nothing else to offer for yourself. Yeah. And that's sort of what it, it feels like is happening to him. It's like, he's achieved all of these. I, I So he's got his, that new documentary out. And, you know, he's achieved and proved all these people wrong, whatever the case may be. But yet he's clearly still lacking something because he keeps feeling like he has to keep sharing all this stuff with us. So it, it doesn't seem to have helped. Like, your mm-hmm. soul still hurt. And I think what's, what's super frustrating is, um, like, I think about when he, um, like, I felt really bad for him when we, he went to the Oval Office and he was having a whole manic episode and mm-hmm. no one was there to actually, like, protect him from that. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, we can still, we can still have compassion for the fact that, like, uh, for, like, the things that he struggles with. But at the same time, like, people who are mentally ill also don't go around aligning with political views that actually harm our community. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like yeah there's a there's a line yeah yeah and I think what's so interesting is he's someone that wants the benefit of the doubt but then you're calling yourself a god right like Mm -hmm. in order for people to um, embrace your humanity we have to hold you accountable but we also can understand your flaws but don't call yourself a god if you don't want to be seen as a complete human being yeah yeah, that's what frustrates me. Like I see him, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on. on mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually had an embargo where I refused to talk to him for like three years. And I, I started I, talk. I feel you on that because it's so complicated and it's frustrating. Um, yeah, that that's why. I, like I've unsubscribed and I put more of my attention into like supporting like black women that I think are geniuses. Ah, uh, okay, okay. And, and that I, I, I support that 100%. I think I partly still follow just out of, um, for me anyway, I like to be on top of what's happening in pop culture so I can reference it in some way, you. even if it annoys the shit out of me. Uh, but part of me is like, I got to know what's going on. I, I just have to. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, like I see the comments that are underneath his posts and it's not like a lot of black people and mm-hmm. he's convinced a lot of folks that certain things are okay and they are not okay. Uh, they're, and they're like you okay. said, the community is going to, our community, the black community is going to pay for, for yeah. it. Uh, I, th- I think back to like when he was making the whole like slavery was a choice comment and you know, I think we can all agree that we understood what he was trying to say, but it's like your platform is too big and we're mm-hmm. in way too vulnerable of a space for you to be saying that. But I yeah. think about um, what was it? Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who did the who curated the 1619 Project. Mm-hmm. She is like an actual genius on paper, like she received the MacArthur Genius Grant for journalism. Mm-hmm. She yeah. is somebody who is who is like pushing to tell the truth about American history. Um, she was denied tenure at her alma mater because um, she was connected to because somebody on the board um, was a conservative and didn't agree with CRT with, with critical race theory. And so Ridiculous. she was being like blocked from an opportunity. And so it's like there's this. It's like there's this black woman who's like really fighting to make sure that our history is being told. And he's saying slavery was a choice and that we need to get like insinuating that we get over it. And now he's on this whole like I'm tired of black history, black future month. And it's like I agree that we can think about the future, but it's like there's so much history that we have to uncover first. Um, And it's like we can have both. We can embrace both we can embrace our history and like really unearth our history. That stuff is so vital. It's like, we can't have a future without that history. Yeah. Uh, and he's <laughs> we're going back to it, but he just seemed like he's embraced this new culture of not knowing and being okay with lack of knowledge and ignorance being perfectly fine. And yeah. And he celebrate. can, cause he can afford to do that. He right. can afford to it, but we can't. And we that's can. just is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I actually, I like what you said about how like these agents of like picking a uh, little bits of doubt into things or adding to white supremacy. Cause I, I feel that same way with Joe Rogan with some of the like questions he asks on his show, like maybe he's not necessarily doing directly certain mm-hmm. things, but he'll have a line of questioning that brings up enough doubt and questioning for people who are on the fence. So uh, anyway, it's, that's another tangent. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, But what do you actually do for fun? Um, Lately, I've been making beats a lot. Oh, okay. Which, which has been fun. Like I've been doing it for a year. Like I have no musical like background or talent, whatever, but I was just like, let me, I don't know. I went down the YouTube wormhole and I was just like, (laughs) I'm going to like, this makes me feel like I could do this. And so I taught myself how to make beats and it's going pretty well. And nice. so I've been doing that for fun. You know, um, obviously it's like we're in COVID, but I'm trying to kick it with my friends more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, I'm a huge, huge, like movie fan. Like I love movies and I'll watch anything, whether it's good or bad. Um, I would, I want to become a filmmaker. Like I want to get into directing. And I think that that's sort of a frontier that I have in mind, but yeah, I really love movies. Ah, okay. Uh, what uh, I just actually finished watching Candyman right before this. I heard um, that was good. 
Yeah, uh, it, it was. And, and then the lead character is an artist. So that's why people were kind of telling me, you should watch it, you should watch it. Um, cool. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what uh, what uh, movies are you, you into right now? Or what's a good one that you saw recently? Uh, my favorite movie right now is Kajillionaire by Miranda oh. July. And she's oh. an artist. And, like, okay. she, like, does, like, performance art and conceptual art. And, like, I just like her quirkiness and her sense of humor and the way that she creates an entire like world and universe in her movies um or in that particular movie because that was her first film Mm -hmm. what else Mm -hmm. um sometimes i'll watch like bad teen movies from the 2000s (laughs) (laughs) just for nostalgia purposes right right nice hey well you know is you it, it's it's a, actually the thing is like with people like us those kind of things it was funny it was a moment in Candyman and he stops to like look at this you know it just seemed like a random thing and I was like that's what artists do uh mm-hmm. we like it's source material every single thing is source material for us absolutely it's it's hard to shut it off yeah yeah well, and, and that's why it's also important to have hobbies and, and do things that are like, you know, outside of what you might normally want to do. Too. Absolutely. Like, like with um, beat making, it's something that is just like, this is a totally different creative brain of my, mine. Like even um, photography is like, even though I use it in my work, it's still very much a hobby of mine where it's just like, I can turn off my designer brain and just feel um, or like create off of intuition rather than trying to be so um, calculated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you find uh, like with your art or graphic work or whatever that there's this pressure to like make it fit within fallen cargo or fall into something that you can eventually sell? Yeah, I'm trying to like, I feel like in the last year I've been trying to break out of that. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of went through this like, create destroy rebuild phase during the pandemic because i found myself getting exhausted by um just like every everything is branded content now on instagram Mm -hmm. everybody um has a platform and i think the responsibility of that is very scary to me Mm -hmm. and so like i've backed off like I just started getting back on Instagram, but I took like a four month break from it completely. And I'm still kind of touch and go with it these Mm. days, but I'm like, I don't want to get, I don't want to be so caught up in like what fits for the brand anymore. I don't want to be caught up in like algorithms and strategy. I just want to create to create. And even if I'm not receiving the reward of what I create in the, in those like instant moments, at least I know like maybe in a hundred years, this will make sense. Like, you know what I mean? Like I've totally changed my perception of time. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. I, I'm so like, I want to do that too, but what I've done instead is create all these different Instagram accounts for the different moods. So, mm-hmm. uh, and it's because like the brand partly, uh, I found that like when I was throwing like my more personal stuff in with the brand, then people were like, oh, I don't even know what this is. And I'm like, it's a clothing brand. It's a, you know, go to the link in my bio. But people don't even check that stuff. They just like. Because 
the the platform has completely changed to video content and i and i i don't think that artists should feel the pressure to have to change their practice just for likes and engagement unless you want to like unless you're really trying to figure out how to expand your business but it is it's, it's hard these days and i think i'm i think the reason why i've been pulling away from instagram so much is cuz i don't think that the I don't think the platform benefits me anymore. Mm. You know, I think it's running its course. And then you have like, the, you're inundated with NFTs and crypto and, um, and that is already just like an exhausting thing to, to study. Yeah. But it, but it's definitely, definitely hard to kind of stay the course sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, so I try to just stay the course and, and, stay rooted in like what work make what what do I feel good creating you know if the work is good it doesn't matter whether it's an nft if it's a printed poster if it's something that nobody ever sees on instagram and maybe they see it in a gallery like it doesn't matter anymore yeah you know what that's exactly where i'm at too like uh i'm i'm curious about the nft space and and i'm looking into it and researching and learning but like the way people talk about it, it seems so disconnected from what, why it's important to me. Like mm. the NFT is not the thing to me. The NFT is is the ability to showcase my work in a different way. That's what's mm-hmm. uh, intriguing to me, not just the idea that it's an NFT. Like that scares mm-hmm. me when I hear people do that. I think... Um... It's because it's so new and people, people are just trying to, I think the, there's that fear of missing out on mm-hmm. an opportunity. There is um, like right now we're in a time where resources are scarce and people need money. So people are trying to cash in. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say since I've done re- like a deep dive and like research in NFTs, I was able to kind of move past the crypto bro noise and find people <laughs> Seriously, for, and like find people that are like really that really care about community and care mm-hmm. about um, that aren't in it for the sole purpose of like trying to make a buck. Like right. they just want to um, they're they're actually really excited about this technology and all of the possibilities with it. And I have another friend of mine, uh, a designer that's out in um, her and I, we worked at Hasbro together and she's out in L.A. right now. And her and I have been. Um, trying to set an intention for why we want to study nfts mm-hmm. um and I, th- I think it's important for people to set an intention for why they want want to and i and you know being able to kind of set some ground rules so that we don't become enmeshed with technology is super important um because i think that there's a lot of i'm not opposed to nfts but i think that i am opposed to metaverse i think that there's a lot of dangers with it that are very obvious to us and um, we need to listen to it. Mm. Um, I think it's going to hurt us more than help us. I also mm-hmm. feel like technology isn't going to be the solution to all of our problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to, we have to accept that because, um, you know, I, I think I have my gripes with the tech industry as well, um, <laughs> which is like a whole other conversation, but <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think everyone should go into it with the right intentions and also think beyond just collectibles because collectibles will always come in and out of style. Collectibles are always fads. Um, I think the 
the the technology of like the digital ledger like that is important like yes. that's really cool and yeah. um you know I, I think people just have to think beyond just making up a currency yeah i agree a hundred percent that's kind of where i'm at and people like us who um you know we probably created tons and tons of digital work that in you know, in a lot of ways is valueless or rejected mm -hmm. ideas for clients that we still think are dope, but we are trying to figure out how to use it in some way. Uh, like this gives us an opportunity to, to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, to me, it's intriguing for sure. And you're right. Like once you get past this, the tech bro thing, it, there, it is a lot more to it. Um, but yeah. And, and it's, it reminds me, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but it reminds me of like when we transitioned from more, from less of a print world to a, um, like a more online world. Mm -hmm. uh, there were people who thought uh, print would just die completely. And there are people who thought that we were all crazy and the internet would never be a thing. Um, but it's really like in the middle somewhere, like print di prints diminished. It's still very important though. And things for the real world are still important. Yeah. I was, I was just watching, um, the problem with John Stewart and one of the guys he had on, they were talking about like conspiracy theories and misinformation. Mm. And one of the, the pieces of history that he brought up is like, he's like, you can't forget that when the printing press came out. That was around the time that the Salem witch trials were happening and people were get and people were getting information outside of what was put in the Bible. And so mm -hmm. it was changing culture and people had like a fear of that. And so it was like, OK, we're just going to call everybody witches. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. it was really just women investing in their self-care regimen, like. Oh, <laughs> uh, women. It's always women that end up. Yeah. Like <laughs> and so now with like the internet like there's this like mass hysteria and misinformation and so like we're just going through the ebbs and flow of that and i think yeah. you know we're all looking for balance and uh surprisingly enough i had a really great conversation with someone on a black nft art discord and that's what we talked about he was like the whole purpose is for balance he was like it's not supposed to rule out physical objects or make mm -hmm. digital objects more valuable than the physical it's supposed to um create balance so that in the same way that we have a value to physical objects, mm -hmm. um, we can also add a value to digital objects as well. And so that's the whole purpose. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Uh, and I, that's the thing that, that gets me excited about them. Uh, and it's scary to sometimes say that because I, I see a lot of my folks in the, in the creative industry who, who hate them. And so it's, uh, yeah, it, it is. It's a dicey thing, but I, I feel like they're here to stay. So, I mean, we got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like your physical stuff, like, do you ever think about pricing um, for your community or are you thinking more on the lines of, I don't even know what that even means, but, you know, Virgil, for instance, got a lot of criticism for the price of his his goods um mm -hmm. do you ever think about like uh fallen cargo is you know streetwear luxury uh or when you came up with it were you i mean streetwear luxury wasn't even necessarily a thing but 
it, for me anyway, I remember growing up, it was always like, you know, those Carcanine jeans or whatever they are, like they were always more expensive than just mm -hmm. going and getting the other jeans. So you knew you were always going to pay a little more to be a part of the culture. Yeah. Is that something you think about? I do. I do. I mean, I think in terms of like Off-White and Louis Vuitton, like we have to remember those are brands that are designed for a specific um, price point. And that's okay. Like that's how, that's how we develop products is like, you have things that are a certain price point. Mm -hmm. And um, like, cause not only did Virgil like come up with Off-White, he also had Ben Trill, right? Mm -hmm. That was um, a lower price point, but that brand didn't do well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so um, I think, I think sometimes you have to like think about it outside of the context of him and black culture. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like, I think that is in a different situation or like that is in a different um, bracket of marketing and product development. Mm -hmm. In terms of Fallen Cargo, like, I don't strive to uh, occupy that price point. Mm -hmm. um, but I do, you know, like, I'm constantly struggling with making art accessible, but also, like, I still need to get paid. I still need to make a sustainable living. And so... I try to base base my pricing on that. Even with freelancing, it's just like I need to be able to like afford healthcare and pay my taxes. And so like I don't want to be starving. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, you know, I base my like freelancing rates on that. And then, mm -hmm. you know, but when it comes to like developing fallen cargo product, I do find myself in a space where I'm like, are people gonna pay this much money? Or because I know I'm a frugal person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um but you'd be surprised what people will pay for like if they support you and love what you do and respect the idea and the concept they will pay for it like even when I did the photo book I'm like are people gonna pay $60 for that or mm -hmm. are people gonna pay $40 for a t-shirt and people have paid that much yeah. money yeah um yeah I've definitely hit that wall where I'm like <laughs> that mental block where it's like I don't think I would pay for this but mm -hmm. <laughs> but the, it's the right price Sometimes mm -hmm. it's just the right price and I'm not yeah. necessarily the target market. So. I also think, I also think like from a brand development standpoint, like there are brands that I have in mind that I have no attachment to, you know what I mean? In terms of like what I would want to de develop, like I have a, I falling cargo is precious to me, but mm -hmm. I know that I can go and create a brand that meets a specific price point and meets a certain audience that may be different from falling cargo. And it's like, I have the skill set to go and do that. Mm -hmm. That's so sometimes sometimes you got to be business-minded in that way yes yeah for sure for sure and and like that's where the i think we as designers have that superpower where like we can be chameleons and and uh mm -hmm. do that switch it up if we need to yeah so i'll ask you a couple more questions mm -hmm. what are you listening to right now oh i i've been listening to a lot of let me pull up my my playlist. Obviously, <laughs> like I've been listening to a lot of my own beats. Right, right. Um, I have like Kehlani's album um, ah. on repeat all the time. When uh, did that drop? Because I didn't think she put anything out recently. That, that came out in 2020, though. Oh, okay, okay. I was listening to her heavy. Um, I was 
listening to um, Styles P and Havoc from Mob Deeps, mm-hmm. um, their collaborative project, mainly for like beat inspiration because I like Havoc as a producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Earl Sweatshirt's most recent project. Okay. Um, what else? I was on like a Alicia Keys stint for a while. Like I don't pay attention to too much. I ha- I've like missed out on so much of her like career. Like she has so many albums and I only have like her first two. And then I was like, wow, like she has this beautiful catalog of work and we never look at her. Like we never call her a musical genius ever. I went on like a, a binge of like all of her music and I was like, wow, like she's on a whole other level. Like she's on some like, crazy like nina simone phil collins like level and we forget (laughs) Mm. why do you think that is i don't know i think because um i I mean i've always made the ignorant claim of like her and john legend are kind of like we know their music is good but like it's kind of like i'm not gonna listen to it every day it's kind (laughs) of boring sometimes (laughs) but then i was proven wrong when i was going back into our work and i was like oh damn like Mm. like she's somebody that like her and uh, Adele should do a versus. Mm. You think they give uh, Adele a pass in the culture, though? Well, I mean, I, the culture loves Adele, but I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. At some point, versus is going to open up to like a white artist. At some point, yeah. yeah. Well, Scott Storch, I guess they they had him in, but like he's so hip hop. Uh, yeah, yeah. So if there was like one piece of advice you would give someone who wanted to start a creative practice, what would that be? Mm. This is a tough one. Cause there's so many things that I could say. Um, I don't know. Believe that you could do it on your own. <laughs> mm. I think a lot of times creatives, we, we assume that we're not business savvy or anything like that. And like, it's possible and like it's super accessible um and like don't get caught up on the fact that everyone is doing it or everybody has a brand you know just make something that's meaningful to you Mm. yeah good advice good advice like you've been doing this since 2016 and you know i've been around for that long too and i've seen so many people come and go in that time period and it gets discouraging when you see new people pop up but it's also really okay to fail like it's okay to like start a brand and then it not and then maybe something happens where it's just like you ran out of money or it just fizzles out it's like that's just the stepping stone to the next thing that you might do like it's okay to just like fall flat on your face 100 percent. because honestly that stops so many people i talk to from even starting they're so hung up on the fact that it could fail. And the thing is, it's okay if it fails. It's all right. Yeah. I think once you, once you like, I think the biggest thing that I've learned from like working in like the commercial design space and the corporate space is like when you're doing brand development, like some things don't work and that's okay. They just move on to the next. Mm. And you can also do that yourself. And I think when you aren't afraid to just try new things and suck at it for a while, the mm-hmm. whole concept of failure doesn't exist. Like for me, failing doesn't exist. I'm just like, oh, okay, it didn't work. We'll try something Mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you got to be very fearless. You can't care what people think all the time. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. So 
Um, how can people find you online? Uh, even though I'm not on Instagram much, but at uh, <laughs> Fallen Cargo <laughs> on Instagram, that's about it. And FallenCargo.com. If you want to order some merch, some prints, that's probably like the two two main places you could find me. Mm-hmm. Actually, do you do your own printing? I've seen some videos of it. Lately, I have been doing, I've been like uh, going into a, a couple of my friends. They run a, a, a letterpress studio and I like just rent some time, a few hours and I've been printing my own stuff. Cool, cool, cool. It's one thing that I never got into. I really got a little bit regretful of it. But, oh, no, that know. was like my first time letterpressing. So like... Oh. Okay. Like it's super, it's really easy. Like once you get the hang of how it works and you have like a, someone there to just set it up for you, it's like, boom. Okay. Yeah. Cool. 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 So Ali Thatcher, this has been a pleasure and I feel like I could go on and talk to you about all kinds of other stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We got to keep the line of communication open. We can have like any time we can have conversations. I enjoyed sweet. this combo. I appreciate that. Cause yeah, I've just, I feel like we connect on a lot of levels and um, I just, I relate to your work on so many, in so many ways and I'm just a, a huge fan. So, and building this community, particularly of black folks in this industry, it's like, it's, we, we need that. Yeah, I love that. And I appreciate that. Yes, indeed. All right. So folks, make sure you check out Ali's work and that's it. Thank you for listening to Art Pays Me. Thank you to Langy Beats for the theme music. You can find more of his music on YouTube. If you got anything out of this, please rate, review, or leave a comment on whatever platform you're listening. You can find out more about Art Pays Me at artpaysme.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. I'm at Art Pays Me on all of those platforms. With that, We're out. Peace.